morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? Glad to see your faces. Uh, hey, let's talk about parables. Um, man, so we've been cleaning up stuff at our house. Uh, does anybody know who Marie Kondo is? <laughs> definitely uh, has had a, a grip on her house yeah. like the last couple months. Um, she's big on like kind of decluttering and getting rid of some stuff. And, uh, so basically we've been throwing away games and stuff. <laughs> um, no, I'm kind of a, I'm a sentimental hoarder um, and I've got boxes of stuff from my childhood. Like, um, and my wife is just not like that. Um, it is, it's not that she's not sentimental, but I, I'm bad. Like I, every like birthday card, graduation letter, and any of that, I keep it. And uh, she just doesn't. Um, so we've been, we've been kind of, I had the week off. I work in education. It's my day job. Um, so we've had spring break. So up and off. Um, and uh, so we've been cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. And the other day I look over and there's a set of like uh, caster wheels that go like on the bottom of a file cabinet or something just sitting on the counter. And I was like, hey, uh, Bree, what are the what are these caster things doing over here? And uh, I was like, can I, can I throw them away? Because we've been throwing everything away. Um, not everything, but um, I was like, can I throw them away? And she was like, no, don't throw them away. Why? Why not? Um, they're just uh, obviously whatever they went to, we don't got it anymore because they're just sitting on the counter. And uh, she was no, they were my granddad's. No, I don't care. Um, but then she reminded me that uh, when her grandparents moved to the place where they were retiring, they got rid of a lot of stuff. And her her dad actually owned, or her granddad actually owned a, a equipment company. Kansas City, Palco, and they had like a conference room and everything, and they had these, um, these really neat um, like conference room chairs that are really kind of low back, um, and we got a couple of them right after they, they moved, and uh, so we'd taken those wheels off for some reason or another, um, and just had the chair, and we got rid of the chair, and we had the caster wheels, and she just can't get rid of the caster wheels. Um, her granddad has, has passed, and so um, I realized to me they were, they were just caster wheels, right? Um, but to her, they, they meant something. They were, they were personal. Um, when things are personal to us, uh, when it happens to us, um, when somebody does something for us, it means more, right? To me, like I can understand intellectually. That's one of the last things she's got her granddad, but really mean anything to me, they're just wheels. But to her, it's personal, right? Um, we even use that in our everyday language. That's personal, you know? It's a warning, don't touch that, don't come near me with that, you know, word warning or that, you know, that, that admonishment, this is personal, right? It means more if it's personal. 
So we're going to take a look, a uh, little bit, if you will. Um, actually, I don't know. Cute little picture of Mario Kondo. I forgot about that. Hi, Mario. <laughs> You're so mean. Um, Luke 7. Turn with me, if you will. Let me read it real quick. When one of the Pharisees um, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. And that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see the woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not, or you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this story is actually very similar to um, other stories you find in the Gospels. Uh, it's actually something like this that's mentioned about three other times besides Luke. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go into the specifics. This is, that's a whole other, it's a class, it's a topic in itself. Um, but suffice it to say uh, that there are similar stories in Matthew and Mark. Um, but in those stories, Jesus' head is anointed um, instead of his feet. And that story takes place at Simon the leper's house. Excuse me, John 12 also has a recording of a similar story. Um, that's the most similar, um, and that's where we meet uh, Mary, Martha's sister. Um, it's at Lazarus's house, and she anoints his feet. It's very similar to the story. Um, all three of the other stories besides this one of them take place in Bethany, um, and we think Luke 7 probably takes place in Galilee. Now, I'm not gonna contradict the same stories, or they misdescribe, or the different stories, we're not gonna get in. To that, but suffice it to say that this happens to Jesus a lot. Um, this eating with Pharisees and then people coming up to him and hearing that he's in town. Um, this this story in particular is different. It's like it's why I like the one with Luke um, because Luke uses a, a literary device that's kind of odd. Who's ever read the book 1984? 
um, by George Orwell. So if you're reading the book, you get about three quarters of the way through, and there's this really, at first you're like, oh, that's kind of cool, and then you're reading some more. But about three quarters of the way through, the main character in the book picks up another book and starts reading it. And so you, as the reader of 1984, are reading along with him in this other book. And it's actually a, like a linguistics manual. It's really boring. But it kind of helps you figure out what's going on later in the story. Luke kind of does this. It's a story within a story. So the main point of this parable is not the actual parable story itself. Because I'll tell you, the main parable story itself is two sentences long. Just two sentences. Right? The real lesson in this story is the surrounding story. What happens to Simon, what Jesus says to Simon. That's the real <coughs> crux of this parable is, is what's happening around the story. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Um, I just read 36 through 40 uh, with you guys. Um, but let's go back and look at uh, verse 36. So this, this thing I said before where Jesus comes into a town and he's talking to Pharisees, that happens a whole lot. And he's invited a lot of times into the house of the Pharisees. And like we talked about last week, people are going to challenge Jesus. And it's not mean. It's not necessarily like, I don't know what that, you know, like I don't know what he's talking about. This guy comes into my town. He's healing lepers. He's feeding people. It's not that they're mad, right, about that. But they're in charge of of religious life in the town that they are, right? Um, they're, they're not pastors per se, but, but we serve, pastors serve a similar role in churches today. Um, so they were just kind of checking him out, right? So occasionally someone will bring um, something to me, a, a book or a study, or they'll talk about a sermon that they heard. Um, and a lot of times they'll, they'll say, what do you think? Um, and if I don't know the person, I, I'll go look at it, um, and I'll say, hey, you know, yeah, this is what I thought. I'll listen to the sermon. Um, people are, are looking, you know, not for permission, but, you know, just, just what, what did you think? And, um, David talks a lot about uh, shepherding. We shepherd our flock, we shepherd our congregation. Um, shepherds carry around a rod and a staff, right? One's for guiding leading the sheep, and the others for whooping up on stuff, you know? Uh, so sometimes we gotta, I mean, we're not gonna beat anybody, right? But, um, but, you know, it's for protection, right? So, so when a Pharisee has Jesus over, it's really kind of the first century equivalent of, I'm gonna go read his blog, right? Like, I'm gonna go check out his Twitter and see, you know, what this guy says. That's essentially what What's happening here is that that Pharisee is looking out for the people that he leads, and he's saying, "Come on, have dinner with me. Let's talk. You're making some some out there claims. I want to make sure that things are going on." Verse 37, we're introduced to this woman, um, and really all that we know about her is that she's led a sinful life. Now, again, this may be uh, Mary, Martha's sister, uh, Mary, you know, Bethany. Um, but I'll tell you, for this story, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't really matter at all because, um, quite honestly, she's not the bad guy. Like, she's not the one we are worried about. Um, I'm not saying she's being used in the story, but what I am saying is that, that she's, kind of a, she's kind of an outlier. 
She's not, that's not who we're talking about. So it doesn't really matter who she is, we just know that she's a person who lived there and she's got a sinful past. Verse 38, we see, um, so she comes in and she starts crying over his feet um, and wipes the tears off and puts perfume on his feet. So in, the, in this time period, first century Palestine, that area, um, because of the shoe, kind of shoe they wore or the lack of shoes that they wore, um, there's a lot of walking because there's not mass transit in first century Palestine. Um, so your feet get dirty. And so it was kind of a sign of hospitality um, when you came in. A lot of you guys know this is to wash someone's feet. It's kind of a humbling act also. Like you as the host, you're providing this service. You're washing your guests' feet. Also it kind of served a hygiene purpose. They've been walking around dirty and dusty. Um, so she performs this act for Jesus. She cleans his feet and perfumes them. This is actually, we're real early on in the story, but I'll tell you this is my absolute favorite part of the story. Verse 39, let me read this for you again. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, quote, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Simon said to himself, let me, literal, like the literal interlinear, like when you look it up in an interlinear Bible, it's got the Greek, they translate it back into English. The interlinear translation is he spoke within himself. Not in this translation. This is an inside thought, not an outside thought. Stay in your seat, but let me virtual huddle with you guys. If you're going to talk smack on Jesus in your head and he answers you out loud, you're in trouble. <laughs> I was reading this, and I was like, I can't actually put this in the sermon, but I'm going to say it anyway. My first thought was, Simon, bro, you messed up. <laughs> he talked to himself, and Jesus answered him out loud. So we're about to see firsthand what it is, what lesson Simon's about to learn. Um, move on to the next verse. This is the actual parable here. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts both. End of story. Right? That verse goes on now, which one of them will love him more? Jesus is still talking. Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I don't think Jesus was really snarky, but like, that's just me. But I would have been like, yo, and you sign. <laughs> Let me tell you about the amount of commentary that exists for this actual parable. Zero. It's not out there. Like literally the only commentary I found, they were like, uh, pretty straightforward parable. Um, Denari is about this much money. Right? Um, and they basically just retell the parable in the commentary. There's not much out there, so this is what we know. 
Straightforward story, right? Two people, they owe a debt. One of them owes about 10 times more than the other. They can't pay it. The guy they owe says, don't worry about it. I got you. That's it. So again, the lesson's not really in the parable. It's in the surrounding area, around the parable. The lesson is so thinly veiled that it's almost a joke. Jesus delivers this and then goes on from there. Let me let you in, let me let you in on a little pastor secret. Uh, there are sometimes like templates that you can use to write sermons, right? Um, or just a, like a, an idea, right? And so what I use, for the, what I've been using for the parables is, is called a verse-by-verse -verse commentary, right? And generally the way a verse-by-verse -verse commentary works is that you deliver a part of the verse, which you've seen me do. I unpack the verse for you a little bit, which I've done. And then generally I give you guys an illustration to really drive home the point, right? So now we've seen now the thoughts have just made. Let me explain to you the illustration that came up for this section of scripture. After hours and hours, nothing. I came up with nothing because the illustration is so simple. It's just a story. I literally spent so much time and I realized anything I could say, any story I could tell you, and you know I love a good joke, but any joke I could tell you is just going to complicate the issue, right? Jesus isn't mincing words. It's not really even that much of a parable. He's basically making fun of Simon. It takes him two sentences to relate the entire parable because the lesson is in how Simon responds to those two sentences. It's not in the sentences. I know, right? Neither was my sermon illustration. There's that. The third set of verses, 44 through 15. <laughs> Let me read this again because this is, this is the nitty gritty. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, this is the body posture, the Verbal jousting is so important here. He's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? He can't say no, right? Like, she's obviously, this woman's crying on his floor. Like, she obviously is there. Like, yes, I, you know, I see the woman. He can't say no. But in reality, what he's really kind of saying is, do you see this person? Because he knows what Simon's thinking, right? Simon's thinking, this woman's a sinner, right? This woman what a sinful life. That's really all Simon has said about, him, about her out loud or in his head at this point. So when he says, do you see this woman? He's calling out her humanity, right? He's, he's not saying, do you see this sinful woman? Do you see the, a lot of the... A lot of the manuscripts assume um, that she's a prostitute. He doesn't say any of that. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, 
has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, her sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see in verses 44 and 46, Jesus is addressing the, the lack of hospitality. So the way we normally do, you invite somebody into your house, and you either provide them something to wash their feet with, or you do it yourself. Customary greeting, the time and place was a kiss, right? And then when you're sitting down to eat, you would get an anointing of oil as a blessing. Welcome into the house, blessing the meal together, the time together. Simon doesn't do any of that at all, and Jesus calls him out. You haven't done a single one of these things. But this woman, who I, I know what you're thinking about her. I know what you think about this woman. She's done all that and more since the time I walked in. You can't show me basic hospitality, but this woman who you loathe so much has done so much and more. And then in verse 47, really just to drive the point home, he ties in the parable as plain as possible. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins, she's the one that owns the fire, 500 denarii, many sins. She's the one. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, Simon, loves little. Makes it plain as day. Simon, if you didn't get it from the story, I'm going to make it real, real clear. This is about you. And then Jesus forgives her sins. Okay. <clears throat> You and I, and our parents, and our grandparents, and our great-great-grandparents, we've never grown up in a world without a Jesus. Okay, Jesus has always existed generations and generations back for as long as we know. But before Jesus existed, there wasn't a person who we could say, can I be forgiven of my sins? Right? You had to go to a priest or make an offering or petition God on your own and make an offering. You to do these things. You have to see certain people. You couldn't just walk up to someone and be like, I've done a bunch of bad stuff. Can I be forgiven? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. Right? So the fact that Jesus, what he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Again, plain as day, not beating around the bush. He's not saying, go and see the temple priest and make a burnt offering. You know, just like you used to in first century Jewish society. He's saying, I'm going to do it. Your sins are forgiven. And the, the guests are freaking out. Who's this who we would forgive sin? Who's this guy who comes into our town and acts like God and says, I'm the one who's going to, who is this guy? And what does Jesus do? Literally doesn't even address the room. Turns back around to the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The question is, is looming. How? How are her sins forgiven? Right? Like, this is, 
this guy, as far as they know, is just some prophet. Some guy who knows scripture real, real good. And he comes into these towns and he does some neat little things. Seems to be able to feed a bunch of people at the same time. Seems to be able to heal people. And again, he's quoting scripture left and right. <clears throat> he's sure he may be a prophet. We've seen these guys before, right? But this guy's claiming something better. He says he can forgive your sins. And how does he accomplish that? Well, if you're, if you're inclined towards this concept of a, a predestination in faith, then you'd say, well, I mean, her sins were basically forgiven before she even walked in the room, right? Like God chose her to forgive her sins, um, so she's already forgiven. If you're like some of the early church fathers, you look at writings uh, by guys like Ambrose, who believed wholeheartedly in the concept of penance, like to pay for your sins, and he says, well, very clearly, she's paying for it now, right? She's humbled herself before Jesus. It's, she's showing how sorry she is. She's paid penance. That's, that's how she's saved. But Jesus gives us the answer right there in verse 50. Your faith. Your faith has saved you. Your simple belief. You showed up today. You acknowledged who I was. Just your faith before you even got down on your knees, before you even broke into tears. Your faith has saved you. And we see this time and time again, right? And Jesus, Jesus heals people from afar, right? They send representatives. Hey, Jesus, can you come to my house? And he'll, no, don't worry about it. Your faith has saved you. We even see it in the Old Testament, right? And Abraham, Abraham was considered righteous. It was his faith in God that saved Abraham. It's the belief. It's her faith. Her love, right? The, the, her outpouring of love, her acts, her showing Jesus didn't save her. They were simply a symptom of her salvation. She's showing Jesus, look, you did this stuff for me. I know you did, right? I know, I know what you've done for me. So she's not paying for it. She's showing Jesus this how, how much it means to me. I know you're going to come into this town, and she probably knows this Pharisee. This Pharisee's probably been on her case about her lifestyle. She knows these people. She knows how they are. And she comes in and she says, I know he's not going to show you even the most basic bit of hospitality, but let me do it, and let me show you how much I love you for what you've done for me. Her love is a symptom, not the cause of her salvation. The acts are just simply evidence of love. <clears throat> That's the website for City Lights here in Tulsa. Um, we've done lots of work. We've done some fundraising for them. We've collected, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sleeping bags and socks. Uh, if you ever go to a Thursday night light, outing that they do, um, you're more than likely going to meet this man. Um, and if you go to their website, there's a short two-minute video about this man. That man's name is Harvey Dry Jr. And I would almost say you should go just to meet Harvey. And I implore you, if, if you're not going to go on a Thursday night and meet Harvey, at least go to the website. Just search City Lights OK and watch the video about Harvey. 
Let me explain to you a little bit about Harvey. For a while, Harvey was homeless and addicted to meth. And he says it plain as day. You know, beating around the bush, people say, I have a drug problem, I have issues. He'll just flat out tell you, I was addicted to methamphetamine. And he was homeless, and he found a woman who was willing to open up her home to him. She lived in a trailer. She had some health issues. She was also addicted to drugs. And so Harvey used to call it sleeping out. Like we sleep outside under an overpass or you know, on a bench. She would sleep out when the weather was warm. When it got cold, she said, hey, you want to come live with me in my trailer? It's not much, but it's warmer, right? You can sleep outside. So they had this arrangement where they went back and forth for a while, and Harvey lived with her. They kind of helped each other out. She got real sick. And they took her to the doctor, and they diagnosed her with late-stage cancer. And Harvey stayed with her almost every day. And it got too much, and he left the hospital for a couple of days. And while he was gone, he got word that she passed away. And Harvey was completely lost. The only person Harvey had in his life, family and friends, she was gone. You can look at it even from a, a utilitarian standpoint. The place where he was staying in the winter wasn't his. That was gone too. Everything Harvey had in the world, completely gone. And if you watch the video, it shows the route he took. He walked around the city. You'll recognize all of the landmarks. There's the, there's the bridge um, down by actually where we live downtown, uh, the BOK Center. It shows the route that he took, and he's walking, and he's walking. Um, and he ends up at the Naval Bridge. Um, which is just outside, if you know where the jail is downtown. That's where they do Thursday night lights. And he said he ended up there, and he said, in shock, scrawled out on the pavement was the message, through God, all things are possible. And he said, I knew I had to stop. And so he stopped, and a woman named Sarah came up to him, and she said, hi, what's your name? My name's Sarah. What can I get for you? No questions asked. Where did you come from? Are you homeless? Did you come from one of the shelters? My name is Sarah. What can I get for you? Sarah, Sarah is the founder of the Tulsa chapter of City Lights. She's, she's a big boss lady. When you go to set something up, Sarah's the one you want to. Sarah's the one you want to talk to, and there she is, serving out loud. No questions asked. Harvey, what can I what can I get for you? She welcomed him in. And they took care of his needs. And I guarantee you, if you go to more than one City Lights event, you'll meet Harvey. Because every time their doors are open, Harvey's there. Every time they unload a truck for Thursday Night Lights, Harvey's there. They serve food, they hand out clothing and toiletries. Guess what? Harvey's there. And when it's time at the end of the night to pack everything back up, that guy on the last table on the truck, that's Harvey. We do some work, just in our family, donation-wise, with City Lights. Um, she tries to volunteer there as much as she can. Um, so she's gotten to know Sarah pretty well. She actually knows Harvey. Um, 
Harvey knows my kids on a first-name basis. Um, not because we're there that often, because he's that good. Because he cares. Um, if you know my children, um, you know I have two younger children that are kind of stuck in the perpetual uh, terrible twos. <laughs> no, my younger ones, they're sweet, but they're just at that age where they're stubborn, right? They don't like to do things. Bree went to City Lights to drop some stuff off, and Everly would not put her shoes on. She's got this bad habit. We get in the car, shoes and socks come off. Just immediately. So Bree wasn't having it. She wasn't going to fight it, not dragging, screaming, crying kids in. So she picks Everly up, carries her in there, stops in the office, and sets her down. No shoes, no socks. Harvey says hi. You know, does it? Okay. He disappears in the back and he comes back with a clean pair of socks. We didn't need it. But when someone does something for your kids, it's personal. You see, when Harvey needed love, the most, someone was there to show her love. So in return, every single time City Lights doors open, Harvey's there. I told you, every time they load, unload a truck, Harvey's there. Harvey shows love day in and day out to people, whether or not he thinks they deserve it or they need it. I don't need socks. I have a whole drawer full of socks at home. Little pink ones with frills and hippopotamuses on. I don't need more socks. But she needed socks right then. No questions asked. Harvey gets socks. Because Harvey knows how much he was loved and wants to turn around and show that love to someone else. When it comes to this story about Simon, the people that are supposed to represent us, the reader, we don't want to be those people. It's like the Good Samaritan, right? Like we read that story, and we really, really, really want to be the Good Samaritan, but that story's not meant for us in that way. Right? That story is meant to show us what it means to receive love from someone else. And it's the same thing with this one. I think you and I both really, really, really want to be the woman on her knees, showing Jesus just how much he means to us and just how much we love him. But the truth of the matter is that the story that he told Simon is meant for us. He's speaking to Simon, but he's also talking to you and I. And what he says, what he says when he says, whoever's been forgiven little loves little, the inverse is true. Whoever has been loved much, gives much. What Jesus is saying to Simon is this, if you don't recognize these actions, it's because you don't recognize my Father's love. If you don't look at this woman on the floor who's weeping at my feet, mopping the tears up with her hair and anointing my feet, if you don't recognize that as something that you should be doing right now, and 
You don't know my father. You don't know salvation. You don't know love. And the same is true for you and I. I'm never going to get up here and tell you guys something that I won't tell myself first. Okay, I want you to know that. This isn't coming from a place of judgment. I was so convicted of reading this, I can't even tell you. I associate myself with Simon so many times when I think about it, it hurts. I, I did the right, I did the right thing, right? I went to church growing up, I went to church camp. It was what I was supposed to do, right? I went to a Baptist college, right? I got out, I started raising a family, and I heeded the call, right? I joined the ministry, I went to seminary, studied, I took all my classes, graduated, I found a church, and I preached, I did the right thing, I did all the right stuff. I'll tell you right now, none of that's gonna save me. Not a single one of those things. That's not the action that saves us. The actions are a symptom of love. If we can't see ourselves in the face of the woman on the floor, we have to ask ourselves, do we know God's love? Do we? Can you say that today? I ask myself this when I get up. Every morning since I started preparing for the sermon. <clears throat> are you going to get up and show God's love like she did? Or are you going to rest on the fact that you did the right stuff? This Pharisee did the right thing. Jewish tradition is no slouch when it comes to scripture. right? These people memorize, even to this day, the super Orthodox Jews memorize entire books of scripture. Right? He did all the right stuff. He went through the schooling. He held his, his position probably at the temple. He made his pilgrimages. He did what he was supposed to do. But he can ask himself, did it? Do I know love? Does God's love compel you to wash the feet of those around you or sacrifice what you have to show love? And mercy to those around you. Repeat that. Does, does the love, you know, you're here, right? So I'm assuming that we all know God at least a little bit, right? But does that love that you feel from God, does that compel you to go out and do acts like this? If the answer is yes, God bless you guys. I'm, I'm glad to count you brothers and sisters. I am. If you've never felt that drive to drop to your knees, wash the feet of somebody who represents Christ, right? Whatever you do to the least of these, you do for me. If you've never felt that love, and you've never felt that compassion, then you've got a lot of questions to ask. We don't, we don't do altar calls. Um, not officially. 
Um, but in a minute, I'm going to be back to that to pray with you. Again, if you've never felt compelled to act out of the absolutely free, undeserved, completely unexpected and everlasting love of Christ, then I, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. I want to make this personal, right? I want, I want to connect for you the love that we profess for God and the love that we profess for Christ. And I want to connect that with some actions. I want to connect that with an outpouring of love. I want to make it personal. To those who are forgiven much, 